Hi, this is Keith Coogan, and you are listening to the New Wave Music Podcast. Rock and roll. Welcome to a special episode of the New Wave Music Podcast. I'm T-Bone, and along with me is Steve. Uh, Today we have a really special guest. You may not be familiar with the band Lions and Ghosts, but they were hugely popular in the late 80s, especially in the Los Angeles area. Steve and I have been listening to their music, and some real highlights from their album are songs such as Passion. Man in a car. He's got places to go. Just a man in a car. Living his life in a shell. Today there's too much traffic in his way. And Wilton House. When this old town gets you down, come and join the cyclones and we'll dance all around the Wilton House. We're just curious friends who all love to pretend and we'll laugh till the end at the Wilton House. With us today, we're really thrilled to have him here, is both is the guitarist and vocalist, Michael Lockwood. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's tonight now, isn't it? But will, well, it, be today? Yeah. will, it, be, will it be today when this is broadcast? <laughs> we're doing a little bit more in the evening instead of the day, that's for sure. <laughs> so, Michael, like I said, uh, you know, a number of our listeners are, and we have listeners in 75 countries around the world, all over the place. But the fact of the matter is most of our listeners probably aren't going to know who Lions and Ghosts are. Understand. For me, you know, and I, I don't always like to compare one band with another because you stand on your own. But for me, you guys kind of sound like uh, a combination of Gene Loves Jezebel, The Church, and, and I'm probably going to be a little obscure here, but a band called The Big Dish. Um, just so that our listeners can kind of get a good idea of who you guys are, uh, Lions and Ghosts, who would you say are some bands that have that kind of a similar sound? Well, um, you know, for that time period, we were a little bit of a fish out of water as a band because in Southern California, as you know, in the mid, mid 80s and later 80s, there was a big hair metal scene there was the post-punk scene. There was the, the UK scene had really transplanted itself from, you know, London to over here. On any given night, you could see Love and Rockets, The Alarm. The, you mentioned The Church. 
all those bands lines and goes to open for. So it's not surprising that you would lump us into that sort of uh, pond of other artists. Um, you know, if you ask me what I hear is underneath all of that, I hear a little bit of big star. I hear obviously a little bit of the Beatles. I hear the influences probably some of the same influences that the other bands you mentioned had as well. But I think it's safe to say that our sound was uh, more English and more like those bands. I think the church is probably a really great comparison in that they were a little bit out of their element and scene too, because I felt like they're not really new wave and they weren't really that sort of, you know, the Gene Loves Jezebel thing, I think like the song Contradiction. Contradiction. I can see how that would fit in that. And it didn't hurt that Peter Walsh, who produced their more popular records, happened to produce the first Lions of Ghost record, too. So I'm with you. I can agree with you on all those points. Well, you know, and we, I guess, Steve, I can't remember who we talked to a little while back who said that, um, you know, they didn't really see their band as sounding like those bands at that same time uh, because. They weren't they weren't influenced by those bands at that time. They were influenced by bands that they grew up on. And I'm assuming that's probably the same kind of situation with yourself. I think so. I think that's really fair to say. Now, in retrospect to your question, when I've gone back and listened to everything through the remastering process and 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 rummaging through older tapes of other stuff, I kind of I really do get why it gets compared to that. And maybe it's because that's what was current. That was what was popular. And we were competing in that. And we wanted to compete with those kinds of bands and it competes, not the, the correct word, but we wanted to be of that ilk of that scene because it was current and it was modern at that moment. Right. Well, um, you know, can you give us, I mean, it, it has been a little while in the past, but I, I'm sure you know them. I'm assuming you know them still very well, but can you give us a brief introduction to each of the members of the band and what instrument they played? Sure. Um, this singer and the main contributor to all things Lions and Ghosts was Rick Parker. And um, prior to Lions and Ghosts, Rick Parker Michael Murphy and Todd Hoffman, the other two members of the band, all were in a three-piece mod band in L.A. called Banner. And we shifted to a quartet when I joined. They changed the name right before I joined them. And um, after Lines and Ghosts had split up, Rick Parker went on to do solo records, and he also went on to do a band called Sparkler. And most people don't know this, but he's also a hugely successful mixer and is a, is a Grammy winner for that. Um, so he's got quite a career as that. Uh, I'm mean, still in touch with the other guys, not as much because more recently Rick and I worked together. And uh, I know that uh, Todd Hoffman, the bass player, is uh, now he's a race car driver. So. Oh. So he does that. He does that in Southern California. And I know Michael Murphy, the drummer, after he left Lions and Ghosts, he was in a great band called, I think they were called 
deconstruction. And that was with some of the guys from Jane's Addiction. Oh. But I believe now he is an IT tech aficionado. So I'm pretty sure that's what he's up to these days. All right. Well, one thing I did want to ask you, um, uh, when it came to songwriting, whether it was lyrics or whether it was the music itself, uh, was Lions and Ghosts a group effort or was one band member more in charge than the other? Well, I think a lot of responsibility fell to Rick, the singer. But the process that we used mostly was everybody brought in ideas as a group, whether it was a riff from someone or a drum pattern. And we were constantly in, I mean, it's what we did for a living. So we always rehearsed, we always played music and we were always working on new ideas. So musically, it was a, a big, huge pool of contribution, but the lyrics were all Rick Parker. And I would say most melodies were his. I'm sure that other melodies came in and around, but a lot of it fell to Rick and it was a group effort and we did share our songwriting and publishing so the band toured as a supporting act with a ton of great bands, as T-Bone mentioned, including Gene Loves Jezebel, Love and Rockets, The Church, The Alarm, just to name a few. Was there any show or tour with an artist that stood out to you? Um, there are lots of great memories and, and great standouts for different reasons, some of which I can't even say on the podcast. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, I do remember... The alarm show was really great because it was in a smallish club. And mm. I was a fan of the alarm. And I remember buying, I don't know if it was an EP or a single before they really hit the States. I was really big on digging and scouring. And I would go to the record store constantly to find new music. So there was a great little shop on Melrose um, called Vinyl Fetish. And they got all the new imports, you know, the day they came out, which back then probably was on a Monday or something back in, back in those days, new music day was different than it is now. But uh, I remember getting some new music by them and really liking them. So I thought it was really cool that we ended up opening for them as they were coming out. They were on K rock and they were getting a buzz. We played a tiny little club in West LA. And I think it was a place called club 88. That was a great show because there wasn't a lot of people there. And so, I mean, we literally, I might've sat at the front table, hanging out and watching them. And we had talked to them during sound check and it was all super friendly back then too. You know, it, it, to just cross into another story, we opened up for Guns N' Roses a bit and wow. it's a radically different musical scene, but that's kind of what LA was at that time it didn't really matter. You could have a punk band and a metal band and a English Anglophile band all in one thing. And everybody was really supportive of each other because the end goal was to share our music with people. And, you know, the night I remember playing a night at the Roxy on sunset and we opened up for guns and roses. It was a crazy night. It was completely packed. And we had a lot of fans there because we, we were quite popular in Southern California and had a big draw. So we opened for them. That's the night that they got signed to Geffen. And wow. I remember them announcing it on the stage. And, you know, we were so happy for them because it was just another one of us that got to where they wanted to go. And, and that was to get the record deal because that was 
the big thing then. That was your, you know, you build a following and you just pray that you get the record deal so that you have your next step to everything. So I remember looking at the guys that night and I was said, you know what? It's going to happen. I can, I can feel it because it's in the air. Lots of bands are getting signed. There was lots of bidding wars for bands. And, and sure enough, not long after that, we were, we had a little bidding war with MCA and EMI and we ended up going with EMI. So it was an interesting scene, a scene. And I, I, like I said, I, you know, the alarm show was super cool and personable. And the opposite of that is the excitement for playing with Guns N' Roses. And that's the night they got signed. So the album Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime originally came out in 1987. It was just reissued as a digital uh, remaster. Uh, what can you tell our listeners about the album? Well, I guess there is the looking back thing that's been happening for me. It was interesting because when we recorded our first record, the, the way we we got to it was we, we had just gotten signed. And when you're a new band and you just get signed, you work with your A&R guy and you, we try to find a producer. And at the time we made a dream list of all the different producers that we wanted to work with. Uh, one of them was Tony Visconti, who had worked with Bowie and T-Rex and Thin Lizzy and lots of great uh, bands in the uh, 70s. We also had listed Peter Walsh, who was very current and had uh, produced Gene Loves Jezebel, Peter Gabriel. So he had a lot of success with Simple Minds. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out with uh, Tony. Uh, so we ended up talking to, to Peter Walsh. And he said, listen, uh, my wife is pregnant. I can't leave the country. Would you guys come to England and do your record? So when I think about Velvet Just Look of the Lime, I think about this journey that these four young guys went on, got on a plane, probably the first time that any of us had left the country. <laughs> we went to England for three months and made that record. Oh, wow. Oddly, Peter chose Tony Visconti's studio in Soho to do the record. So we saw uh, Tony every day. And at some point, Tony came into the studio and said, I'd really like to do some string arrangements for you guys on some of the songs. So we kind of had the double wish come true. And so that record is a timestamp for the mid eighties, even though it came out in 87, you know, we'd been writing it through 85 and recording in 86 and it came out in 87. And um, I think it's chock full of some pretty good songs. I think that the production has held up well over the years and now, you know, I've had this opportunity to get the masters in and re-release that record. And I have a, a little label called Sparkle Plenty and my manager helps me run that. And that was on our list of things to do was to get it out there digitally. It's a little bit of the 80s. I think it's a little bit of the 70s. It's a little bit of the 60s. I hear that in the songwriting and such. And I think if you are a fan of some of the bands we mentioned, whether it be Love and Rockets, although I, I think we were probably more pop oriented than someone like that. But Gene Loves Jezebel, uh, The Alarm, um, some people compared us to The Replacements, but I think that was a little bit later on our second record where those comparisons came in. But I, I think if you're a fan of those bands in that era of music, this is a great little hidden gem that I think a lot of people don't know about because one, it was released on CD and vinyl at the time. We sold a ton of records only in Southern California. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and, and maybe uh, some in uh, Sweden. And that, <laughs> that was that's where our thing was. And now I've read that there was pockets of other places too, but it just, it never connected for whatever reason. So I feel like I had an opportunity to uh, rebirth it, to add some fun 80s remixes that were made in the 80s and made by like some current guys at that time. So I thought that would be nice. And I thought it'd be nice to put on a couple B-sides that came out and release that because it was odd to me that everything on the planet is available streaming, but not these two records for AMI. So I chose the first record because it seemed appropriate and it was kind of a, you know, a labor of love. Well, how involved were you and, and maybe any of the other band members in the reissue of this album? It was, it was me. The odd pandemic story I have is that this guy, Jeff Keller, reached out to me through Instagram and he wrote me this beautiful little note at a time where everybody could use a little beautiful note, right? Mm -hmm. It was a little strange and isolating for a lot of people. And he wrote me and he said, look, I met you when I was a young guy. I've always been a big fan of Lions and Ghosts, used one of your songs for my wedding song, blah, blah, blah. He wrote me this really, really nice email. He said, I just wanted to reach out and say, hello, are you interested in doing a Zoom call? So once a week, I started talking to this guy that I didn't really know and became friends with him through the pandemic. And we spent months talking about the music business, music, different bands, our personal lives, all kinds of stuff. And at some point, he said, you know, I really feel like I could help you because I was trying to think outside of the box, good timing, because the pandemic really forced that issue. So I really wanted to come up with some other alternatives. And he started representing me a few weeks later. He called me, he said, I got you a record deal. I said, oh, okay. Well, what, I, what do I do with that? He goes, well, what do you want to do? So I really started thinking about that. And what I really wanted to do was to help other artists and other bands that I have heard that maybe couldn't reach as many people as I could. And the label that I have, luckily, is partnered up with Deco Entertainment, who's a part of Warner Brothers. So we have a massive distribution network. So that's what I could offer some people. And I was working on some projects throughout the pandemic uh, virtually. So we started talking about it. On that list was the Lions and Ghosts record. And so as things started rolling, we got to that. Concurrently, I had run into Rick Parker, the singer of Lions and Ghosts, right before the pandemic. And he and I started communicating during that period. And we had gotten together just before the lockdown. And we sat together with two guitars and wrote a song. And we spent the pandemic going back and forth, sending files and, and doing things. So Rick was the only person in the band that I was in constant communication with. And I told him, I said, look, I think I'm going to be able to get our first record and to put it out digitally and get it on the streaming. And he said, well, you, you have my blessing. You seem to have the energy to want to do that. And there's a lot going on. And I, I don't know that I could be a part of that, but I'm supportive of it. So I ran with it. And, um, and then sort of at the same time, we finished this new song, Girl, I love you. Well, you're never gonna do what I want you to do. 
I thought that was an interesting little, that was then, this is now, and there's hardly any difference. Well, you know, I wanted to say that your, your awesome publicist, Wendy, she has told me that Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime is on her Deserted Islands album list, uh, which obviously means that it's the one album or at least one of the albums that she would go, she would take onto a deserted island for the rest of her life. It must feel good hearing something like that. How crazy is this? She's my publicist. She's the label's publicist. And it's not because I knew that she was a Lions and Ghosts fan. It just all worked out that way. It's so strange because actually we, when we started the label and we started gearing up for some releases, we released a song called uh, Unkind, which is by this band Bird Streets. I have been most unkind Driving handcuffed and blind Could have steered out of the crash If we had only tried now we're watching it burn and you're wondering why who hail out of brooklyn and i had amy mann play bass on it i had my friend patrick warren who does a lot of string arrangements for a lot of great artists he's uh, a lot of del rey guy he wrote the string arrangement for that and so we released it and we had a publicist from new york and it was quick and it was, we, there was a couple of articles and it was done. And then the singer from Bird Street said to me, I worked with this girl, Wendy, and she's really great. She's really <laughs> a true music fan. Yeah. I met her and her and I go have lunch. And she sometimes, she accompanied me to a podcast once and we hang out a bit and we are always talking about music and different stuff. And I, I think Wendy is going to, if we can, get going and get finished. I think she's going to help me write a little book about my experience uh, in the eighties and nineties about going from being in a band, going through the things that everyone did at that time. And then I, I sort of did this weird little turn into the nineties where I was a musical director and guitarist and producer for Amy Mann and Fiona Apple and Susanna Hoffs and all these amazing and incredible uh, singer-songwriters through the 90s. So, so Wendy, I'm with you. Wendy is awesome. <laughs> yeah, no, she's great. So going back to the album Velvet Kiss, Lick of the Lime, is there any p- tracks in particular that you would recommend to our listeners to check out? Well, um, I like the list that T-Bone gave for sure, and I appreciate him for calling those out. I think, you know, a song that probably was our best shot at a single at the time is a song called Passion. And mm. that song, it... It wasn't, it didn't really get released as a single, to my knowledge anyway. We ended up releasing a song called Mary Goes Round, which was quite popular in our live shows. And then we did a song called Contradiction. And that was our second single. But I feel like Passion, the song that opens the album, is, I think, is a great opening song for an album. But I also think that it's a a very uh, strong song for 80s new wave people. I will point you in the direction of the movie Modern Girls, which is a great 80s cult classic, features all kinds of great 80s music. Lines and Ghosts song Passion is in that movie. So there's something, there's a little Easter egg to uh, to dig out there. 
My favorite song on the record is actually called Stay. Um, so you mentioned merry-go-round and contradiction, um, and I, I got to say, Michael, I, I one there's one of the remixes on there of of contradiction that is just, it's it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it just has a great beat to it and kind of funk to it, and mm-hmm. uh, I absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely. Um, now, those songs, you know, you kind of mentioned this. Those songs did get pretty regular playlist rotation on K-Rock. How did it feel to get that kind of success? I mean, it may not have been out of the Los Angeles or Southern California area, but I mean, you guys did pretty well there. We, thank you. Uh, Yes, we did really, really well in Southern California. So I, you know, that led to other problems later because there was this misunderstanding on our part. It was kind of a bubble to be honest, right? Because we lived in Hollywood. We played all the Hollywood clubs, but we also played all the clubs all the way down to San Diego and up to San Francisco. And we would canvas all those areas. And we were playing very big shows in LA. Like, you know, you said, we were playing at amphitheaters and, and bigger places opening for these bands that were, I guess you'd say they were the top of the alternative charts of that time period. Those are the songs that you hear every hour on K-Rock. But I remember the first time I heard Contradiction on K-Rock and I went, shit, that's us. We're on. And it sounded so great on the radio. I probably had the worst radio in my car, but it, it, it was something that we'd all worked really hard for. So that was really sort of a measure of success to hear yourselves. And K-Rock was a big radio station and probably very influential, I, I would imagine or maybe it's more so now, but I do remember at the time thinking, you know, it was the end all be all it. And um, we were on KXLU, which is a college radio station. And we were also out of uh, KCRW uh, mm-hmm. out of um, Santa Monica. There were some other stations, but K-Rock was, you know, that was the thing. So it felt great. So is there any plans to uh, release digitally the second album, Wild Garden? Well, there is conversations about it. So um, I have a lot of material uh, from that time period. Uh, and also I have, to be honest with you, I just have tons and tons of early demos. I have B-sides, remixes. But what I do have, uh, and I would be really interested in trying to put this out with Wild Garden is I have an almost complete alternate version of Wild Garden that was recorded not awfully long after the first record. I don't know if you've listened to Wild Garden, but the production, the the music stylings are are much more stripped away. There's no, I don't, I think there's no real strings on the record. It's more rootsy. It's more Americana. And I think we were really second guessing ourselves because, and this goes back to what we were just talking about, we lived in this bubble and we were successful in that bubble. And then when we popped the bubble and we put that record Velvet Kiss out, we didn't get the sort of response. I think we were expecting some 
response similar to what we had earned in Southern California. Mm -hmm. So we really second guessed ourselves and our musical direction changed, members changed, producers changed, a lot of things changed. It, you know, the people that did love us didn't understand the second record because it was not that long after, really, it was a year and a half after or something. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty different. So I, I would be curious, and I've spoken a little bit to my manager about this, perhaps next year talking about releasing that digitally and maybe doing the like yin and yang, the before and the after, because that might be a fun listen, not just for people that are fans of Lions and Ghosts, but it might be a fun listen for people that like to hear the process. It is definitely, I think I have some early demos then I have a big packet of all the songs with a bunch of instrumentals. And then there's the album. That might be a fun trip for some music people to uh, understand the process. Lions and Ghosts disbanded after, after the tour of the second album. Can you kind of shed some light on what led to the band dis- disbanding? I think it's safe to say and to reiterate, you know, releasing the second record it didn't even reach as many people as probably the first record. So we were certainly traveling down the wrong path. And and we had gone through, we had changed managers a few different times. We just, I'd say we were lost souls, to be honest with you. The recording of the second record wasn't nearly as pleasurable as the first record. It, It became more of a job because we were actually trying to figure something out instead of sticking to our guns and growing from our first record, we actually got off the freeway and went down some side street. That's the way that it appears to me. And so we we did that record and we went out and we had two different new members in the group. The dynamic was very different. And I think coming home from the tour and playing a few shows there, it, there wasn't any, it wasn't like some big breakup. It was just that I think we all got to the point where we didn't understand ourselves or where we're going to go. Also, we are fairly young and I think we're still all figuring ourselves out each individually, personally, um, philosophically, musically. So at some point it became that the grass might be greener on the other side. So we went our separate ways and um you know rick continued to make music michael and i had done a instrumental um project called love administration how 80s is that and it was all sort of atmospheric uh instrumental music that was very 80s in that there was uh snippets of radio dialogue and movie dialogue all interspliced with all this instrumental stuff And it was not dissimilar to maybe art noise or something like that. So we were all experimenting and looking where to go. And, you know, I I do remember maybe a year later, maybe two years later, I can't remember, Rick called me and he said, hey, do you want to get together and play? And I went to a rehearsal studio and it was him and I, we just sat there and played music for a few hours. And I still didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. And I think Rick was looking for that thing too. So it just, it never bloomed beyond that. It's kind of a shame because I feel like we probably could have made some great music together. And maybe that's now, not then. 
you mentioned it uh, a moment ago, and I, I just found this the, kind of fascinating that you've, you, well, and Rick also has, but you stayed in the music industry and you've worked with some incredible names. I mean, how do you get involved with working with an Amy Mann or a Fiona Apple? If I knew that, I would distill it, I would pour it into a bottle, and I would offer it to you at a very reasonable price, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, my nickname, by the way, is Lucky. And sometimes that's for the right reason. Other times, it's sarcasm. So uh, there was a moment, you know, you think about this. uh, L.A. was a music hub for many, many years, right? And it, and if you use the word again, distill, if you distill all those personalities down, it's kind of a small community, actually. Most people in the 80s, most people knew most people in it. And during that time period, I became friends with this guy, Jason Faulkner, who you might know from Jellyfish or from playing with St. Vincent, or he was in Beck's band for many years and has recorded many solo records. He's a great artist, great songwriter. He was in an L.A. band called The Three O'Clock, who were probably the very, I, I'm guessing, the very tail end of the 80s, right? Is that Yeah, Paisley Park music. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah, love Three O'Clock. Yeah, so Jason was in that band, and I think it was in their later incarnation. And we became friends, and at some point, I had talked to him about joining Lions and Ghosts because we were changing members like we were changing diapers on a baby. Um, so. Um, But it never came to fruition. But Jason and I were friends for years. And I was in a power pop band later. And Jason produced those demos for us. And we were always sort of hanging out and part of the Hollywood scene. Jason uh, ended up being in a band with John Bryan, who is Amy Mann's producer and was her writing partner at that time. And he also, the the band was called The Greys. And it was members from all different bands and they were signed to Epic. And I remember going to see them and talking to Jason about stuff. And Jason came to me and he said, listen, um, I was talking to John the other day and he's telling me that he's no longer going to play live with Amy Mann, that he's still going to write with her. He's still going to produce, but he doesn't want to go on the road anymore. And we both thought that you might be the right individual to fill those shoes in Amy's band. All I knew of Amy at that point was her 80s career until Tuesday. I knew all those records. I knew, you know, videos, the hits and everything. And I knew that she had not that recently at the time released a solo record. So I listened to the first record and I was, I was gobsmacked. It was a great record. The songwriting, brilliant. The lyrics, brilliant. Production was super cool. Um, so I was very interested in that. I didn't know what that would be like playing, not in a band, but playing for somebody. And, uh, Jason and I went and saw her play at a show. And I think John was playing that show. Dave Gregory from XTC was playing that night with them. (laughs) I mean, the show was amazing. So we walked out and I turned to Jason. I go, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely interested. And I, I was a bit frightened too, because I didn't know what the hell that all meant. And I think within a couple weeks at that time, I was really lost musically. I was writing, 
I was recording. I'd been in pop band, power pop bands. I didn't know what I was doing. And I was working part-time in a vintage guitar store. One day in walks Amy Mann, her producer, Jack Joseph Puig, who's worked on many great records, and John. And John, I knew a little bit. The three of them came in and they said, hey, do you want to have a chat? So we walked around Sunset Boulevard and we went to the Sunset Grill and had a garden burger or whatever and, and <laughs> chatted, chatted. And then um, I asked Amy, I said, hey, would you like to hear any of the stuff that I've done like currently? She goes, sure. So we walked back to the shop and I said, I have a reel-to-reel tape of my demos if you want to take that. And she's like, sure, why not? That sounds great. And we went to the studio, listened to them and then called me and said, do you want to come down to the studio tonight? So I went down to the studio I ended up playing on Long Shot, which is on her second record, and hung out all night till the wee hours of the morning, just chatting with her and John. And then her and I went off and we talked and we talked about music, but we ended up really connecting, talking about relationships. And it was just, it was lovely on all counts. So I started showing up to do play with her and John. John had a little... Uh, he used to do or still does these Largo shows here in LA, but at the time he was doing them at a different bar. So I started getting up and playing with them and, and started rehearsing with Amy. And that started me down this weird, wonderful path where I was lucky enough to do this juggling act where I'd get a call and somebody'd say, Hey, are you available to play with Susanna Hoffs? Um, I saw you play with Amy Mann. You would be the right fit for Susanna. So I was just finishing up this rotation with Amy and I segued into being in Susanna's video, going on tour with her as that ended, then maybe Amy started again, or then it was Fiona and then there were sessions. And just for like 12 years, I played with all these incredible artists and I don't know, I don't know how that happens. So to explain it to somebody (laughs) like, here's what you need to do, kid, listen to me. I don't know. I was available. I think I have the right temperament to be in a situation where I know how to give other people space. I'm also not bad at giving direction. Unfortunately, I know how to fire somebody in the nicest way possible. So I think that's why some of these things fit me and fit working with those people. And that was an incredible run. And Amy and I are still really good friends. And I just wrote Susanna the other day and sent her some of the Bird Street stuff. And so the only one I can't find is Fiona. I was emailing with her and now she's disappeared. So I'm going to have to dig a little deeper. But um, it it was a strange transition going from being in a band to somebody's right-hand man. It's good to have friends, huh? Yeah. Thank you, John. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, well, Michael, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with us to introduce us to Lions and Ghosts. The, yeah. the album is great, as, as is the new single, Girl, I Love You. Now, with that being the new single, can you kind of tell us about how that came about or how you were able to, to come up with the new song? Sure. Um, the Girl, I Love You story, uh, I told you partially, but I guess, you know, the odd thing about it being that it's L.A. and being that there's just all these different connections. I got an email pre-pandemic from an artist named Kenward Cooper. And he said to me, are you interested in doing a session playing guitar on these three songs I have? He sent them. I listened to them. I'm like, great songs, lots of room for fun guitar, ear candy. Um, Sure, I'd love to do that. And hey, I have a home studio. Amazing. I can pour coffee, stay in my pajamas, 
and do some recording. And then he wrote me a follow-up email saying, great, I'm glad you could do that. I booked time at Rick Parker's studio in Hollywood. Um, are you available to go there? Blah, blah, blah. I wrote back, I said, sure. God, I haven't seen Rick in 10, 13 years or something. Mm-hmm. So I was a little, I was a little nervous. I, you know, I haven't seen this guy in ages. So I, I made some notes, listened to the songs, packed up my stuff and went uh, whatever day we had chosen to go. And I walked through the door and it was as if it was 1989. Not a thing had changed. Rick is Dorian Gray. He looked exactly the same. It was all hugs and kisses. And then we proceeded to sit there and talk for two and a half hours on that poor guy's dime while we were in the studio because there was a lot we had to say to each other, right? This was a giant therapy session, like acknowledge, 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 acknowledge. I did blah, blah, blah. You know, it was great. We had a great time. And then we had a great time recording. It was a, it was really nice. And as I was leaving, as you do, you say, oh, stay in touch. You know, do you have my phone number? Let's do that. Not always do we follow up on those things. But I also said to him, I said, hey, would would you be interested in sharing some music, maybe a Dropbox folder, and you can show me some stuff that you're working on. I can show you some stuff. Just get a little feedback and, you know, have a little conversation back and forth. So he sent me some stuff and I recorded some guitars for him. And then I sent him some stuff and we were talking back and forth and it was taking forever because, you know, you write a text or you write an email, you don't get a response, you do this. And at some point, Rick just wrote me, he said, this is not working. Come to my studio, (laughs) bring a guitar, come to my studio. So I went there and we sat down and without even really blinking, we sit down in front of each other, two acoustic guitars and wrote a proper song like we never had because it was always in a group environment. So this was brand new for us, super comfortable. And it was great. You know, I'm like throwing out ideas to him and he's humming and working on stuff and then saying, well, why don't we try this? So we had this great night and he, he said, let's lay down your acoustic guitar thing as it stands like this so that I have some reference so I can maybe work on some other ideas. So we did that. And then, it, and then he said, hey, why don't you work on some more electric guitars for it at your studio? So I did that. And then he said, what do you think about my friend coming in and playing drums? Amazing. And then Rick played bass. And he sent me all that stuff. And I was sort of recrafting the guitars. I played a bunch of Mellotron stuff. And I sent it back to him. And I didn't hear from him. So I wrote him again. And I said, hey, did you get the tracks I sent you? What do you think? Good or bad? I don't care. I'm not married to anything. Just let me know. Crickets, 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 crickets. And I went, okay, fair enough. He doesn't like it. It's okay. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. (laughs) And um, I think I reached out one more time to him and I didn't hear from him. Well, then lockdown happens and everybody goes crazy, as we know. And I had gotten COVID a couple of times. And the second time I had COVID, I was laying on the couch in some fever dream state. And I grabbed my phone and I thought, I'm not a pit bull, but I'm not letting this go. Of course, I didn't call, right? No, of course, I text again, because that's gotten a good response. So I text him and I said, hey, listen, I'm laying here. I'm on my deathbed. Not really. And um, what do you think about finishing that damn song? I feel like we're actually really onto something. It seems like a great track. Let's finish it so we can say we finished it. He wrote me back like in three seconds. (laughs) 
he never got any tracks from me. He never got a link to any Dropbox stuff. So he never heard it. Uh, he, thought like, it he thought you'd given up. Probably, right? So that's that's technology. So yeah. that point on, uh, you know, I think I went back and I re-listened to stuff when I felt better. And I fixed some stuff and I sent it to him. And then he did a rework on the lyrics. And then he did a rough mix and sent it to me. And he goes, what are we missing? And I said... I want to give it to my friend Patrick Warren to do a string arrangement for it. I really feel like the Mellotrons are fun, but you know, I am not as much as I love strings and I love strings on everything. Mm. um, I don't think that, I think that Patrick can come up with some really great counterparts and a proper string arrangement. I sent it to Patrick, Patrick did it, sent it back to me. I had all the files, I sent everything to Rick. And then about a week and a half later, I get a, text that says check your email and he sent me a mix i'm like it's great it's (laughs) it's really really great what does it need i don't know that it needs anything he goes okay crickets no just a little bit just a little bit of crickets and so at that point we were coming out of the pandemic coming out of the lockdown and so i went to the studio we masked it up i went over there we listened to it and he goes, is there anything that, you know, you feel needs to change or is different? I said, no. I said, you know, if I was 24, I'd have a list of 75 things I'd want you to change. Can you lower that note? Can you push up that kick drum? But I said, at 61, it's perfect. I don't, you know, it is what it is. And it's a document to what you and I just went through. So mm-hmm. I'm it. And he he turns to me and we start talking about the lyrics and what they meant to him and what they may mean to other people. And he said to me, he looks at me super serious. And he says, you know, this kind of sounds like lions and ghosts. Mm. And I started laughing and I went, yeah, um, of course it does. I mean, that's, and he goes, but I want to know, like, did you try to make it sound like that? And I said, no. And he said, well, what makes you do that? And I said, you make me do that. Like, I don't know that I would do that for somebody else. I mean, I have my own distinct style of playing, but when I worked on that song, it was very lines and ghosts-ish because that's the way I fishtailed around all his vocals and did counterparts and, you know, what have you. But it was, we had a great experience together and I talked to him about it. I said, I want to release it. I think I'd like to release it on the label and I'd like to release it right after we reissue the thing. And he said, God bless, go do it. You talk to people about it. I'm not going to do that. That's on you. And I said, not, not a problem. I'm, I'm up for it. I've never done it, but I'll do it now, you know? So um, it's, that's the, not the cliff notes version of that story, but that's my pandemic story. That's my girl. I love you story. That's my lines and ghost reunion story all in one. Well, it is a good song. It's a really good song. So oh, I, I like hearing stories about that kind of creativity. So uh, I definitely appreciate that. Michael, again, as Steve said, we can't thank you enough for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, you know, you're still in the industry and we hope the the greatest of success, not only for the reissue of this album, but for you personally, okay. uh, we, we will definitely put uh, in the link in the description links to where you can get this album. You know, this album, I, you've kind of mentioned it yourself a little bit. This album is one of those that it may have come from the 80s, but it's as timely now. 
Kind of. It's not super overly 80s produced. I think I was thinking that it was maybe in my mind somewhere. And when I started listening to it, I went, you know, it's not slathered in in tons of reverb. And it's not all get like all the different production techniques that were very popular in that time. So I appreciate that. I do think that it I think it held up well considering. I agree. Yeah. And like I say, we'll put those links in there. We would we would highly, and I mean this sincerely highly recommend our listeners to check out this album. I, you know, again, like we said at the beginning, you may not know who lions and ghosts are, but I, I, I know that our listenership would enjoy this music. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot. Thank you. Thank you very, very much. Good luck with everything guys. And thanks for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome. 